0: News, news, new, 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 news, news. New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast
1: getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. <A-Q. laughs> it's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn. With Alex Brooklyn in Manhattan. Hello. Hello. And with the semester over, Professor Christina Greer is off on vacation this week. In a few minutes. Nolan Hicks of the New York Post and I are going to talk with Elon Green, the author of Last Call, a true story of love, lust and murder in queer New York. But first, Alex, fill us in on another wild week in New York City, as we're now just a month out from Election Day on June 22nd and coming right up on the start of early voting.
2: Well, a new poll shows Yang plummeting and maybe surprisingly Stringer surging. So a poll calculating what candidates have what support citywide has Stringer I think tied now with Yang, who is down from 30 something percent to 15 since March and Adams leading the race.
1: And we'll we'll see what that means. It's a weird poll. It's Emerson and it's all of all registered voters. So it actually includes Republicans and stuff uh but just swinting you know it's it's pretty clear that Yang's support has at least uh for now plateaued and that Yang and Adams continue to be ahead and the Stringer is maybe still doing pretty well after these accusations were launched against him and uh most of his uh progressive backers sort of immediately fled
2: They have some information on the poll about how many percentage of voters find the accusations against Stringer credible or not credible, which, again, it's always wonderful to see the subject of sexual assault vetted in the public arena right before an election.
1: It's a fascinating question what we're supposed to do about claims that come up right before big contingent moments and how much time you should have for people to report those out before before people make their stances or not. Um, I, I don't have any great answers to that, but it's made for a very uh, odd dynamic in this race and, and with other progressive candidates hoping and so far not yet breaking through. Um, in the meantime, you know – there's, there's been this interesting shift from a summer all about police reform to a lot of interest in, in crime and public safety with like a spate of scary headlines about train attacks in particular. And uh, de Blasios announced in that de Blasian way after weeks of resistance that he will have 250 more cops patrolling the uh, trains. Uh, he says it's because there's a new crop of graduates who just appeared, but also – is nonetheless accusing Cuomo and the MTA, who've demanded those cops, of uh, fear-mongering on the issue. And then there's corruption news as well, right?
2: Right before we get to corruption news, I'm just wondering where his very opaque Thrive program is when it comes to the subway, since a large amount of the more public cases in the subway that are worrying people, the more violent cases – are centered around New Yorkers who have mental illness. So the fact that that's not even part of the conversation and the opaque pilot program is still going on, but nobody really knows anything about it or how it's going – also is pretty interesting to me on corruption two stories accused two mayoral candidates of very different sorts of corruption with The Times taking a deep dive into Eric Adams long-standing and remarkably de blasian fundraising operation Adams only comment for the story was to note that no charges have ever been brought against him and to complain that black polls and particularly Black Poles who come up from poverty, are treated more harshly. And the city reported that Diane Morales paid a corrupt city inspector $300 to resolve a $12,000 water bill and then lied about it to the city department of investigations. And that was, what, like 17 years ago?
1: Yep, when she was a a young homeowner in Brooklyn. But then she's... Been maybe misleading about that sense with the uh, press and how this does or doesn't relate to her not taking a job with the De Blasio administration, where this came up in the interview process. So, so like the two components here are paying three hundred dollars to fix a homeowner's twelve thousand water bill, which I I feel like that's a baseline test of numeracy, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, but then, but then, lying about it in the course of a of a city job and and over the course of this campaign, we, we, which is a whole other set of questions. And Maya Wiley, who said uh, that Morales would be her number two, and Wiley, of course, is a former prosecutor, has really come out swinging on this. Uh, there's some suspicion, maybe this story came from some of the people in her campaign. Um, you know, she says, uh, "So, so you're saying that you paid a bribe and then lied about it, and you're the victim here." Interesting. So, as time is running short, you know, uh, uh, people are starting to take bigger swings.
2: I mean, who among us? I, I'm not saying I'm going to run for mayor, but I'm also not saying that one day I'm not. And I, I, I totally would have, you know, paid three hundred dollars for someone to make a twelve hundred dollar electric, not electric water bill go away.
1: I would have paid. I would have. I would have reported the guy right after paying, though.
2: Would you? Are you going to run for mayor, Harry Siegel, Larry Siegel?
1: No, no, and no. Uh, but if, if somebody if somebody shakes me down, I would absolutely report that
2: person. My but wife disagrees. But who's the real shakedown artist? Is it the government or is it that city official trying to just get by? A question for the ages.
1: Well, that that's her whole defense is 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 a, a wordy. I didn't feel like I had any choice. This was the system, and this guy was part of the corrupt system. Like okay, but then you lied to uh, the Department of Investigation about it. Uh, that seems like uh, really hard to defend.
2: And which is the bigger corruption scandal with Eric Adams? Is it the old raceway stuff, or is it the getting twenty grand from big real estate? Which is the more worrisome charge?
1: I mean, I mean Adams has taken a lot of money from a lot of powerful interests. His, you know, background sort of defense is, I take money from everyone, and that means I don't actually owe anyone anything. And I took money from someone on this side and I also took money from someone on that side. I'm like, I don't really know about that. His on-the-record defense is this this isn't fair because he hasn't been criminally charged and and he's a black politician, which when you look at some of the white politicians, hello, Marty Markowitz, right, is not not entirely wrong but is also not, for me at least – Uh, uh, the most compelling defense. His his view is just that it's going to be hard for this to remand a campaign issue. Andrew Yang is trying to make it one. He's arguing that the campaign finance board should pull some of his matching funds. The Times went out of its way to say that it looked like he was doing things that were actually illegal, and we'll see to what extent uh, voters and authorities in the city care over the next few weeks. Again, it's a very compressed time frame. Um, All
2: right, so – We're all looking forward to Pride. Uh, I think it's going to be virtual this year, but June is Pride Month, as we all know. The parade organizers announced a, quote, ban on uniformed police and corrections officers marching as groups until at least 2025, and that they will use private security instead of the NYPD at the march. The edit... Boards at the New York Times and the Daily News both protested the move, with the Times calling it a, quote, poke in the eye at law enforcement more than a meaningful action to address police violence or foster a dialogue about law enforcement reform.
1: So, you know, Pride, the parade, comes out of a uh, Stonewall and real resistance, much of it aimed with reason at the NYPD, and it's become a, a big joyous and sort of corporate thing over the years. So so this is an interesting move back from that. And it's also a perfect segue into our conversation with Elon Green, who, whose book, uh, Last Call, has a lot to do with the not-so-long-ago, like, 1990s history of gay life in New York City, how the police related to that and its institutions, and at a time when the city had— Two thousand murders a year, like what it took for uh, attention to get paid to a series of horrific murders uh, from people weaving uh, gay bars late at night. So, with that, let's jump right in. <coughs> I'm Harry Siegel of the Daily Beast and the New York Daily News. Here with Nolan Hicks of the New York Post, and joining us is Elon Green, editor at Longform, and the author of Last Call, a true story of love, lust, and murder in queer New York. Thanks you for know, having me. Th- thanks for coming on and joining us. For those who haven't read it yet, and w- w- we'll dig in, and I strongly recommend, uh, would you tell us, please, just, just a bit about the book and what led you to this as uh, as the subject of your first book?
0: Yeah, I mean, the broad strokes of the book is it's about uh, the murder of four men over a three-year period In Manhattan, they were picked up either at or around gay bars, and they themselves were either gay or presumed to be gay. And the book follows uh, the various investigations into their murders, uh, but is also about both the political backdrop of the city and the AIDS epidemic that was ravaging so much of the population.
1: And can you just sort of take us through the sequence here? Like when these killings happened, how long it took for the uh, killer to be found and then tried and those parts. Uh, so we get a sense of the uh, sort of stretch of New York we're we're talking about.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it takes place over quite a span. Uh, the first murder in New York was in 1991. Uh, the second was in 92. And then there were two in 93. And then the case went cold for six years or so, which is not to say that there weren't other murders. They just, they weren't on the radar. And then finally, he was arrested in, uh, I believe, June of 2001. And then there was a tremendous gap, and he was put on trial in New Jersey in 2005 and sentenced in 2006. So you have a good 15 years uh, between the first New York killing and prison and how, how big were these cases? Um,
1: readers will, will come quickly to understand how they're linked or what, why police understood that they were they were linked, uh, involving forgive me but like body parts and bags. and there, there, there's sort of moments where this seems like it's becoming a, a bigger story, and there's there's some tabloid coverage or the mayor is talking about it, and then, then it just sort of sort of fades back into the background, even as you have these investigators who are, who are looking.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that the uh, the ebbs and flows of the coverage just speaks to some degree to the way the press viewed the victims. But I think it also s- says quite a lot about the tremendous amount of violence uh and you know this sky high homicide rates of New York City in those years you know Duncan Osborne the the great investigative reporter said that you know your your murder was not going to be written about in those years unless you were uh straight white and killed in central park and i think that's probably only like a slight exaggeration on the one hand i think that this case uh deserved more coverage particularly in new york but on the other hand if you have what is it, 1,945 homicides in New York City in 1991, it's just simple odds. You, you, your murder is not going to get written about. Uh, you know, in, in hindsight, I I think it might be sort of a minor miracle that it was written about as much as it was. And, you
1: know, this book in a lot of ways are about people whose lives weren't fully part of the public record, that you have victims who weren't out in some cases, were living Quietly and in a pre internet world and, and city when when a lot of this played out differently when HIV and AIDS were creating more more political awareness, but but that this was a, a darker set of corners and i'm curious how in terms of your your research and digging in you know you try to engage this is a book that is, seems in many ways much more concerned with the victims and their lives than with the murderer or just the uh, immediate crime procedural part how did you work through that in terms of uh finding people to talk to finding uh, documentary sources all, all the rest and which parts of their lives were just were just absent, you know, as, as you were looking and, and, and trying to find out more about these people, where you could see the gap and not what was there?
0: Well, I'll start with the second question first, which is about the third victim, Anthony Edward Morero, who was a sex worker. And it was writing about his life that I encountered uh, the most obstacles. You know, there was very little— known about him by the detectives I could not find a single thing about him on ancestry.com and if you know ancestry.com you know that that's very strange I think if I'm being honest about it uh, the information that I was you know certain of about him I'm less certain of now I, I don't know to what degree the original reporting on him, uh, was accurate. And I was never able to talk to his family. I was never able to find a high school yearbook. Uh, stuff like that is uh, just generally a, a, an incredible source of information when you're writing about someone who is not famous. But my first steps were uh, first looking through the court transcript. Any reporter knows that the reason that those transcripts are so expensive is because they're gold and. You know, in this particular case, the detectives, when they testified, were excellent at talking about biographical information. Uh, one of the reasons I talked to the detectives so much is because I was pumping them for information about the victims. I was less concerned with, you know, the investigation and more with just what they knew. So I started with the trial transcripts, tried to talk to everybody that was mentioned, uh, no matter how minor, and so I talked to investigators, family, friends. Um, and then it was, uh, you know, read every newspaper story I could find. And then there were certain archives like the LGBT Center archives. Uh, when I was writing about the anti-violence project, they were invaluable, you know, and then, uh, there were, uh, real angels like Matthew Bank, who was the founding editor of a bar reg called HX. And because he let me cart boxes of HX editions out of his apartment, I was able to recreate the landscape of the gay bars and club scene of the early 90s because it that doesn't really leave a trace otherwise. And, and to that
3: point, you know sort of the the absence of of detail, especially concerning the you know Eddie Morero, part of that is you know he's living on the margins. Know, prostituting. Um He's living on know, the, margins yeah, the margins of the margins. Of the margins of the margins. prostituting him, you know, he's, he's he's a John at the Port Authority. The Port Authority back in those days was notoriously corrupt, as you point out in the book. And and it's not so much that there isn't you know, typically, even when someone interacts with the criminal justice system, like there are little drips of information that you can get, right? Like a police report that has an address that has a last note, you know, or a police report that has, you know, some relatives contact information or some sort of, you know, brief biographical description of, of them or sort of, of their interactions with the system. And in this case, you know, you searched diligently and came up with nothing. And I wonder how much of that is because of sort of, you know, those societal breakdowns where you had sort of law enforcement in a lot of ways sort of aiding and abetting everything going on at the Port Authority in part for their own gain.
0: You know, I think that's part of it, but also part of it is that those records are sealed. Um, I mean, I know that Port Authority had uh, records of of several arrests of of Anthony, but, you know, possibly for good reason, they wouldn't give them to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did acknowledge their existence. I knew they existed from the investigators because, as they told me when they started investigating Anthony, their first stop was port authority right uh, and they they talked to the detectives there
3: it, it just about, if we just back it up again, to sort of the harry 's point of like what gets covered and what doesn 't get covered in a city that 's clocking two thousand murders a year. Mike McElroy, the columnist uh, Daily News at the Time and previously for the post, you know gives Gives this set of murders this really great sort of tabloid moniker, sort of the sort of thing that would typically stick in the public's imagination and ensure, you know, it's the sort of thing that would, that would be on, on the, you know, on the front pages for weeks. Um, And it didn't. The Last Call Killer, which is a great name. And, and it's sort of like, you know, you come up with this great name and it sort of, you know, gets shot, you know, into sort of a vacuum and it just doesn't really sort of touch anything and you never really sort of see it again. Did you get a chance to talk to reporters covering the case, and, and what did they tell you about? Obviously, Mike's not around uh, anymore, but what would, did they have any sort of explanation as to sort of the how and the why?
0: I mean, I, I did talk to some reporters who covered the case, but they weren't—it was like one-off. So they, you know, they wrote their one story. Um, I think it was Ian Fisher who wrote the wonderful story for The New York Times, you know, but there was no follow-up. Uh, he didn't cover the trial. Um, I think that was Damien Cave, you know, so I didn't really get a sense of why uh, the story did not stick.
1: The kicker of uh, the McAulary column is uh, to that question. You you are the last call killer. And no, you are not son of Sam. You're not going to frighten the city the way Sam did unless you make a mistake and kill someone you think is gay. Chop up one boozy Nebraska Yahoo on his way outside of a Greenwich Village piano bar, and the city will belong to you,
0: yeah, Mike was correct in in a in a really uh, crass way, you know i I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that that Rick Unterberg, the piano player at the townhouse, said to me uh when I asked him about the degree to which the first two murders affected business. He said it it didn't really. And I said, why? He said, because they were tourists, so nobody missed them. And, you know, that's an incredibly cold-blooded thing to say, but I also think it's accurate. And I think that's one of the differences between how the murders affected the townhouse and how they affected the Five Oaks.
1: As a step back there, will you tell us a bit about the uh, townhouse and the Five Oaks and sort of the, the worlds both of those belonged in and how those have uh, moved since?
0: They were really different worlds. Um, you know, the the townhouse uh, was and still is on East 58th. And that's basically a residential neighborhood. I mean, if you're walking down East 58th, you could you could almost miss it. And that was a a very popular bar for older men uh, seeking younger men and vice versa. And there was a very vibrant hustler scene. And it was also a popular bar among, you know, closeted older men who were in from out of town and wanted a place to go, but not be in a, you know, quote-unquote gay neighborhood. Now, by, by contrast, you know, the Five Oaks is... Uh, down on Grove, and it's right into the thick of things. It's it's right near uh, Marie's Crisis and Duplex, and that had much less of a hustler scene. Uh, that was a sort of a kind of a warm and yummy place, you know. At, at the townhouse, if you were a woman and you walked into that place, you know they'd shoot you a look, but that wasn't the case. Uh, much less so in the Five Oaks. You know, it was kind of like for middle-aged uh, theater people, uh, in some ways, and aspiring theater people, and that that bar was held together by by the great Marie Blake, the piano player. And I did want to ask you, <laughs> moving around
1: a bit, but can you explain? We're near the end of the book now. You've had this investigation that's been all around the tri-state. So there have been different police forces and departments and such involved. But the killings have happened in New York. The NYPD is a big, powerful thing. So it, it, it can take a certain control when it wants to. And can you explain how it is that they end up with the killer coming to one police plaza? At that point, the suspect, but they are correct. And then he walks out of one police plaza. And can you explain the role that Rudy Giuliani's mom played in that and how that
0: was uh, expressed to you, and by whom? Because well, I I do want to correct something. They didn't let him go. They they arrested him. Mm-mm, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Please go on. Yeah, I, I sort of garbled.
3: Well, it was it was you know that the the task there was sort of a you know they they get they score off the prince in Maine. You know they realize this guy is a nurse a nurse at Mount Sinai, right. uh, which is where Rudy Giuliani's mom is staying, and you kind of like say it in the book without entirely saying it, but it sounds like the mayor basically freaked out and ordered the Bernie Carrick, the then police commissioner who, well, that's that's a story in and of itself, but they basically hauled him in before they were ready to do the, before the Jersey folks are ready to sort of bring the case.
0: So so what ends up happening is that, you know, this is largely a New Jersey and Rockland uh, County case because of where the bodies were left. And so once they had identified the murderer, uh, the task force was reformed, and they decided that they wanted to surveil him for a while, because while they were certain that uh, he had committed the four murders uh, in question, they didn't know a whole hell of a lot about him. They didn't know where the murders occurred. They didn't know if there were others. Uh, They knew he owned a home on Staten Island, but they didn't know much else beyond that. They didn't know anything about his routine, uh, other property he might own, and so on. And so uh, New Jersey and Rockland County, you know, got a buy-in from the NYPD, and essentially that part of the investigation was turned over to the NYPD, uh, who were, it was agreed, would surveil the murderer And I I believe it was like Memorial Day weekend or something when this was set to happen. And then out of the blue, the New Jersey detectives and the Rockland County detectives get a call saying that instead of surveilling him, the NYPD has picked up the murderer and he is currently sitting in a glorified conference room at one police plaza at headquarters. And it turns out that the story was that Helen Giuliani, uh, Rudy Giuliani's mother, was a patient at Mount Sinai Hospital, and Bernard Carrick, who was the police commissioner, basically made an executive decision and told his detectives to pick up the murder and get him out of the hospital and arrest him. And, uh... You know, I think for for a while, you know, people sort of fingered Giuliani, and some of the detectives also pointed towards the chief of police, William Ali, but it was Carrick who made the decision, and I genuinely believe that Giuliani didn't have anything to do with it. Um, I think this was well below his pay grade. You know, Bernard Carrick is a toady, and he lives to serve. Giuliani, as any reporters covered him, would know. Um, and I think he just decided to get him out of there. And I, I had my own adventures with, with Carrick, reporting this part of the book. Would, did you want to hear about that? I'd like to hear a little.
1: There's a footnote that uh, is very intriguing as as to where those adventures may have gone, on and off the record.
0: Yeah. So you know, I ended up getting this story. Uh, from the detectives, and it was really solid. I didn't have any doubts about any of this. They had been holding this inside for years and were still just enraged by how the case resolved itself. So I got the story all settled. I called Carrick, and he kept, you know, sort of playing phone tag with me and kept saying, call back at four, and we'll talk about this. Call back at three, and we'll talk about this. And I would call back, and he wouldn't pick up. So finally, I decided I was going to call him from Skype so that it would scramble the number and he didn't know who he was dealing with. So he picks up the phone and I very quickly tell him what I know. And that's what keeps him on. And he uh, starts to, he either, he does two things. He both denies the account, but says, well, if it happened, I would know. Uh, So because he says he doesn't know about it, it didn't happen, and so he, you know, he kept going back and forth on this. But then finally, at the you know the end of the conversation, he says, "Look, I will go up the chain of command. I'll start talking to people, and I'll get back to you, and I'll see what the story is." So then, like a week later, he calls me back, and he says, "Okay, we have to talk off the record." I said, "Fine." He says, "It's all true." And he says, uh, yes, you were right. Uh, you know, at this point, I was still just working on that chapter, so I wasn't you know done with the book. Uh, and I said, okay that's that's good to know." So then later, you know when I was getting all my ducks in a row before I was sending in the book, um I tried to get him back on the phone because I wanted him to confirm what he had told me off the record, and I could never get him back on the phone. So, me and the lawyer who vetted the book came up with this footnote. Originally, I believe I had just straight up called him a liar, and the lawyer said I couldn't do that because Bernard Carrick isn't dead.
1: Uh, so, right right after that is, is is there's actually a passage that to me what like was the the very center of the the book. Just as a reader, um, you know, these detectives are furious because they they think that that this, this nurse, this killer. Richard killed dozens of men and he's right. In fact, they assumed he killed people wherever he went on vacation. And then I believe you're citing a, a daily news account, right? Um, the questions we wanted answered, uh, we being the detectives here uh, were, what has he been doing since 1993? Who does he associate with? Did he have a place upstate or in New Jersey under an assumed name? He could have led a whole separate life. And now we may never know about it. And that, that was just that the, the sort of one moment where, where, the book is really focused on the victims and their lives until right there and very close to the end. And you have this sense of this, this killer who has similarly a a double life, only parts of which are are visible in public records uh, or, or in sort of a common understanding. Um, And and it's, you know, this is not the distant past, and it was just remarkable to me how how, how shadowy people's lives, and particularly, you know, gay men's lives were at, at, at this point for all these reasons.
0: Well, that's true, but also, I mean, I did have a pretty good sense of how he was spending his time because I was given um, a binder, that a four-inch thick binder that was prepared for the murder trial, and it was essentially a timeline of his life. Uh, using his personal calendar, his work calendar, his vacation slides, and seven or eight years of credit card statements. So that's why there are all sorts of like weird details about concerts he's gone to and the mileage on his car and motels that he stayed at for conferences. Um, But not
1: any other people he may have killed.
0: Right but it does tell you you can at least establish where he is to some degree at any given time, you know, and that was actually that binder was one of the things that helped convict him because they knew that he was off, you know, on the days that the murders had occurred in the aftermath, you know, which is obviously circumstantial, but, but, but helpful in a trial. And it was, it was very interesting to be in possession of something like that where I had all this, quite frankly, unsettling information about a private citizen.
3: To, if, if Just to sort of do another micro-question, and then I think we can sort of zoom out from there with with it. How did you get Linda Fairstein to talk?
0: So, I think I got her to talk in the way that I got a lot of people to talk. Mm-hmm. I was asking about something that was so specific that, I think I suspect no one had ever asked her about. And it's something that's positive. And I think that's why she agreed to talk. I mean, it also helped that, like, I don't like emailing people, and I don't like writing letters. So I cold call everybody. and I just called her cell and she was out hiking, and she picked up the phone and I explained why I was calling. And I think she felt like, okay. You know, nobody's ever asked me about this. Let's talk about it. And, you know, it was the same with William Bulger. Nobody had ever asked him about Tom Mulcahy. And I suspect it was the same with Robert Morgenthau. Nobody had ever asked him about the Anti-Violence Project. Yeah. And the Gay Panic Defense, stuff like that. And I think that to some degree, it's some combination of the fact that I was writing a book And people get stars in their eyes about that when they're sources. But also, you know, if you're giving somebody a chance to talk about a topic that they've wanted to talk about for years but have never gotten the chance, they're going to jump at it. And I think that explains why a lot of people talk to me and not just the famous ones.
3: And just to take that for a moment, it's, you know, for everyone who doesn't know, Linda Fairstein was the, the prosecutor for the Manhattan DA's office on the Central Park Five case, but before that had been a high profile prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office for years. And sort of in that role as the head of the sex crimes division for the, for the Manhattan DA's office was sort of the first city official really to take the idea of violence directed against gay and lesbian New Yorkers seriously, and was the first to really start to try and tackle sort of the gay panic defense. I I guess in America in 2020, knowing what we know about Linda Fairstein and knowing what we know about criminal justice and how it works and how it doesn't work in so many cases, how does this reshape sort of the preconception of criminal justice and of Linda Fairstein and of the Manhattan DA's office, you know, to show sort of, something that, you know, they really did kind of get right and really did try to make a positive difference on, and that the same people responsible for doing this good and right thing were also the people responsible for such a you know travesty and a miscarriage of justice just a few years later.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the lesson is that sometimes deeply flawed, in this case, incredibly repulsive people sometimes get things right um, and are on the right side of certain things. And are on the wrong side of a lot of other things. Um, and I, I think Linda Fairstein and, and Morgan Thau are, are two examples of that. Now, I don't believe that they were like bastions of progressivism by any means. And I think they got stuff more wrong than right. But, you know, I wasn't going to write Linda Fairstein out of AVP's history just because you know, she's a deeply awful person in many ways.
2: Yeah.
3: Is, I guess, and just to sort of follow on that, it reads to me in a lot of ways that sort of the motivations behind taking anti-gay crime seriously were a lot of the same motivations that pushed them to make all those, or, or sort of the reasons that they made all those terrible decisions in the subsequent Central Park Five case, that they they had a violence problem and these crimes were being reported. Prosecutors want to bring cases. And not only do they want to bring cases, they want to win the cases they're bringing. Right. And, you know, so everything that sort of pushed them to get it wrong, actually, basically the same time, all this is unfolding, everything that pushed them to sort of get it so wrong in the central park five case, the, the desire to win, right. Is also kind of what pushed them to get it right in this scenario and sort of the, the, I don't know, horse race isn't the right word for it, but like when, Everything, you know, it, it, there, was, there was a nasty habit in life to chalk everything up as sort of wins and losses and sort of, you know, applying that to the criminal justice system led to two radically different outcomes, one which benefited the city and the other which deeply divided and scarred it.
0: No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I don't think that they were asking uh, the Anti-Violence Project to tutor their ADAs like Robert Kennedy Jr. out of the goodness of their heart. They wanted to win, as you say, and it paid off. It made them better at their jobs, and it made them more capable of
3: dealing with the bullshit gay panic defense. And and to, to that sort of to that larger point, let's sort of, and if, if I can take a second here, Harry, to sort of frame that again is you know, sort of the situation in the city at that time. It's the mid to late 80s. It's the early 90s. The city's, you know, again, clocking 2,000 murders a year. And you have sort of this this environment unfolding against sort of the the city's crime epidemic. You have a community that's not only being frequently victimized by it and and poorly served by the criminal justice system in the midst of it, they're also being poorly served by their city when it comes to tackling and to combating HIV-AIDS. And I think the story does this really brilliant job of sort of intertwining sort of these two massive disservices to the city's gay population and it sort of through this time and sort of weaves them into this narrative of this murder case, which is you have this sort of never ending sort of threat of, of violence, right? Whether you're walking home from the bars in Chelsea, which had not yet gentrified at that point, and which was, you know, a pretty dangerous neighborhood still. And then, but every step in your life as a gay man, there is some terrible risk, right? There's the, there's the public safety risk. And then there is sort of the public health risk and the sort of, Twin those two together and sort of drop it, you know, sort of into in use these four murders as sort of the backdrop for these for these twin crises. I thought was was, was a brilliant decision. And I, I'm sort of curious, I guess, is it just one of those things They keep coming back to like, how do you have a killer? How do you have a tabloid moniker like last call killer and nobody pay attention? And to me, the, you know, sort of the, the answer seems to be that there are sort of larger societal forces at play, but also sort of that it, against sort of this constant backdrop of death, that getting someone to care about any particular death might have just been damn near impossible.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I just remember how shocked I was when I first read about this case, you know, it was four or five pages into a story in The Advocate in the mid-90s. Uh, it wasn't even the focus of the story. And I just could not believe that I hadn't heard of it. And then once I figured out what the case was, I couldn't believe that other people hadn't heard of it. I mean, it's crazy. And the thing is, is that I thought it was crazier the more I worked on it. Like, I I was amazed at where the story went for me between the time I wrote the proposal and finished the book. I, you know, I... Could not have expected that you know I would have been on the phone with uh, William Cohen or I'm sorry, who was the the famous graphic designer of New York Magazine? Uh, I love New York, you know um, you know, just the the spectrum of, of people involved in this in in small and large ways was was otherworldly.
3: And I think it really gets to sort of the idea of sort of how this can only happen, whether it's the, you know, the indifferent response to the AIDS epidemic, whether it's the sort of indifferent response in many quarters to the, to the violence-afflicting LGBT New Yorkers. And it can only sort of happen, right, in, in marginalized communities. And one of the things that I found most fascinating about the book is that as you walk through the lives of each of the four victims, you sort of point out how that marginalization sort of plays out sort of in ripples across across sort of larger American society like if you take Tom Mulcahy who in like in a very New York touch is you know his body is found in these bags with the Sunday editions of the Times and the Post and of the Daily News and one of the questions the investigators ask themselves is who reads all three newspapers which I guess you know Instantly, you know the entire city press corps was was potentially a suspect there for for the briefest of seconds. But you sort of trace his life, sort of from you know sort of these south South Boston, very Irish, very Catholic neighborhoods, and sort of his you know his Catholic education, and at various points, sort of how his life ends up touching. Um, maybe that's a bad choice. Sorts of, sort of interweaves and sort of intersects with the pedophile pre scandal that would end up bringing, bringing down the Catholic church in Boston, where he went to high school with that, who with a guy who would become the top aide for Bernard law, the cardinal, the disgrace cardinal from Boston. And just sort of like how, you know, sort of the marginalization, everyone being in the closet, everyone refusing to take it seriously mean, you know, sort of just kept exploding in, in sort of different scandals that would end up shaking sort of the very foundations of extraordinarily powerful institutions in America.
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you could argue that that's a direct result of the systematic oppression of homosexuality. It was uh, just incredible to me to see those ripple effects. And, you know, when I was looking through the yearbook of BC High for the first time, and I saw those names, I I couldn't believe it. Because it's not like anybody was telling me about this, about that class, And I just happened to see the name James Porter and I knew the name and among other names. And it was, it was like seeing this massive piece of, of undocumented history just kind of sitting there and the threads had never been uh, tied together. And it was just
3: incidental, you know? Do you think it takes, and and sort of one of the, to sort of circle back to Harry's point about the police and the police response is that many, you know, I mean like, Ray Kelly, the police commissioner under David Dinkins, um, you know that there there is a task force that is announced after the the story finally sort of manages to seep its way into the to the New York media ecosystem, and then it just sort of like dissipates after a couple of months. And to get back to sort of like these ripple effects and the marginalizations, right? You have like you know the. Most of the violence is taking place in the precincts that cover Chelsea and the West Village. The cops don't really care. They don't take it seriously or on their, they're on the take from the Johns. They're on the take from the the bars to sort of turn a blind eye to all of it. Yes. Um. And, and I wonder, like, it, it's just like, is it irrational to draw the conclusion that the reason this thing wasn't solved in 93 or 94 is simply because nobody in New York City really took it seriously, no, re- really ever took like anti-gay crime seriously back then.
0: I think that's part of it. I mean, you know, when I was writing it, I took a fairly generous view of the investigation. You know, my my assumption was that it wasn't ever going to be solved unless that ambitious, wonderful fingerprint uh, analyst in Maine had put those fingerprints into APHIS, uh, and and there had been those pristine prints from 1973 that were a match, but, you know, she read the book, and she was livid. She said, why did these guys not solve it back in 93? They had enough information. And I don't think she's wrong. I think if they had pushed the Staten Island angle harder, they would have had him. I mean, because they did have his file, you know? They had his name from from Mount Sinai. Uh, They had asked specifically for male nurses who worked at Mount Sinai, who lived in Staten Island. And I'm sorry, but that's not a huge pool of people. And had they sent out detectives to interview all of them, things may have turned out differently.
1: I'm going to ask you as a a close just about uh, your your experience as a reporter, but also as a, like a straight guy in Long Island being in these gay bars, and that's sort of where the book ends, if you want to pick that up.
0: You know, I I had such a blast going to the different bars. I have to say that in the years when I spent time in bars, in my single days, it was never relaxing. Uh, you know, you always feel like you have to, you know, be on your game, and you kind of feel a little bit like a performing monkey. And... I never felt like that when I was working on the book and going to these bars. It was it was weird, even though I was, re- you know, reporting for the book. It was also like one of the first few times I could like relax. <laughs> it was uh, I loved it because I'm just sitting there and listening to the piano and uh, sometimes talking to people, sometimes not. It was a pleasure, and you know, more often than not. As often happened working on the book, I was presumed to be gay. And if I was asked, I said no. But I also, you know, didn't go around telling people I was straight. If people wanted to buy me drinks, I let them. Uh, you know, anything to keep them talking. But yeah, it was, it was one of the more wonderful aspects of, of working on the book was just being in those actual spaces.
3: To that point, why did you find it? Why do you think you found it relaxing in a way that you didn't necessarily find a a straight bar other than just being in different points in your life?
0: I think it was something about just enjoying the ambiance without feeling like I had to be an active participant, if that makes any sense. I wasn't pursuing anybody and nobody was pursuing me. And I could just drink and chat and listen to the piano and what more could you want? And then the, the
1: book ends with you at the uh, at the townhouse and you're talking to a piano player there saying it's this bar for younger men who are into older guys and vice versa. And now some of those younger men have, have sadly become the older guys. And at the same time, the townhouse, I think, had been part of this whole loop. Like uh, in the East 50s, around East 53rd Street, and and now it's the uh the one remaining place there, which is like that that one artifact of a bigger era in a way that, that that sort of reflects, I think, a bunch of what comes before in the book.
0: Yeah, and it is uh, kind of remarkable uh, to see the townhouse as the last man standing, and um, you know Mitch Kahn, who was the the piano player I was talking to, great piano player uh he's He's right, you know it's it's been enough time since uh the townhouse opened in nineteen eighty nine that the young guys are the old guys and and the roles are reversed and and I think there's something uh very poignant about that
3: especially in a community where there weren't many folks sort of from that who made it to this to this point.
0: Yeah. And that was, uh, I'm, I'm actually glad you bring that up because that was something that was on my mind um, the entire time I was working on this book. Because anytime you work on a story or a book that takes place, you know, decades ago, you're always aware of what sources are available. And in this case, so many guys just didn't make it. Yeah. And, and, You know, I was, I was aware of that every day. Uh, Either people would volunteer the information or I'd say, you know, is so-and-so still around? No. And you'd know exactly why.
3: It, it, It remains just entirely unspoken too, which is sort of extraordinary in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. But, and also, but you know, and, and just to take it one step further, I think that's why a lot of that history stays lost. There's just no one around to tell
3: it. Did, did you Do you think you found it, I don't know if reporting it is easier or whatever, but it is just sort of, you know, Gay Talese is this great quote about how, you know, if you try to fit in, nobody will trust you and nobody will, will talk. But if you, you know, show up like you're a Martian, everyone will just open right up. Do you think that sort of being the straight guy from Long Island sort of, you know, and, and and that is, that is you. I mean, did, do you think that made it, do you think that made it easier or open doors in ways that, you know, it, it might not have otherwise worked, you know, sort of being the total outsider?
0: Sometimes it did. Sometimes it didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think oftentimes I didn't, uh, I'm not sure if the rest is the right way to put it, but I didn't like present as the straight guy from Long Island. Um, but being the straight guy from Long Island yeah. uh, certainly helped when I was talking to detectives. Uh, yeah. They couldn't presume that I had an agenda. Uh, and oftentimes the fact that I was the straight guy from Long Island was helpful because it was sort of a curiosity. Uh, people would sometimes directly ask me, why do you care about this? Um, I had detectives ask me if I was gay uh, just to try to explain to themselves why I cared about this. And I would say, no. Um, so... It was co- kind of amazing the degree to which it was not really ever an impediment. I think that caring about the case and the fact that so many of these people hadn't been called by a journalist in decades went for quite a lot and a long way. And I think that it, you know, sort of, uh, overpowered, uh, any doubts that people might have been, might have had, uh, because I'm not gay you uh thank
1: you so much for taking a a solid hour with us to talk about the book again it's last call a true story of love lust and murder in queer new york it's quite a read and uh i hope everyone listening picks it up and uh really appreciate your time and insight
0: here thank you thank you and uh
3: thank you for having me thanks Uh, thanks for having me harry f-a-q
2: FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brick House Cooperative. Check us out on thebrick.house. We are hosted at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research at NYU and recorded this week from Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Suffolk County.
1: A special thank you to our guest this week, Elon Green, and the guest interviewer, Nolan Hicks of the New York Post. Tell us what's good. And what's not, but just the fact, that's one word, just, D-A-F-A-Q, at gmail.com. Be safe, be good, be kind, and we'll talk to you again next week. And joining us is Elon Green, editor of Long Reads and Longform. God, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was up to my brain.